You know, if I were choosing songs for uh, today's message, it wouldn't, I couldn't have chosen any better ones, you know. Um, amazing, uh, great, amazing Grace, and then uh, Come Home Running, and then, you know, Everything Bows Before You. I mean, those were just hand-picked. So today we are looking at Psalm 51, and I guess I've entitled the message, Grace Amazing. Grace Amazing. And Psalm 51 is a psalm of David, and David has, well, David has been uh, kind of, um, how can I say this? David has strayed <laughs> from his, his uh, relationship with God and his, um, his relationship with the nation of Israel. He, he's lost his focus, and he has committed adultery. He has taken Bathsheba, and she has become pregnant. And uh, so David, you know, being king, he figures, well, you know, I can handle this. I'm king. So he takes her, has her husband sent to the front of the battle, and her husband is killed. He marries Bathsheba. She, you know, she's going to have a child. Who can say anything? I'm king, you know? When I do, I'm king, and it's, and it's okay. And so David has kind of lost this perspective of right and wrong. He has lost his way, and so he thinks that nobody can do anything, and everybody knows. You know, they all in the court, they know what's going on. Well, anyhow, the prophet Samuel comes and says, David gives this illustration about uh, an individual having many sheep, and uh, his neighbor, uh, a neighbor shepherd only has one sheep, and the guy goes over and takes his one sheep and kills it. And, you know, while he's got many sheep, and he kills this other guy who only had one, he has his, his sheep taken and killed it. And David gets all outraged and says, we're going to go and kill that man, and we're going we're to punish him. And Samuel says, you're the guy, David. <laughs> you're the one who has many wives, and you took the one wife of your, your general, and then you had your general killed, and here you are, and God knows what's happened. And it was that situation that forces David to come to the reality and come to grips with how he had distanced himself from where he should be. Now, David was supposed to be, and it talks about how that in the time of battles, in the time of war, David was supposed to be with his armies out fighting the battles. But David had some accomplished commanders. He had some accomplished generals. And so David says, you know what? You guys go handle it. I'm just going to stay back here in Jerusalem and rest in the palace. Well, he was giving up, forsaking, becoming complacent with his leadership role as king and leading his armies. He had become complacent in his relationship with God and looked at Bathsheba and lusted after her and took her and, you know, and had an affair with her. And he had become complacent in all this, even to the point that, you know, I'm king. You know, what's it matter? And when Samuel brought this to his attention, and David realized how far he had come away from his relationship with God and what he had done, that's when the reality of this sin hits him. Now, I, I look at it, and there's, there's two types of sorrow. There's godly sorrow, and there is kind of the sorrow of our, our society. Godly sorrow is 
a, a sorrow that produces repentance. It produces a heartfelt repentance about what has happened and I've done wrong in the sight of God and I've done wrong before God and it has hurt me. And then there is a sorrow that says, you know what, I shouldn't have got caught. <laughs> that sorrow doesn't cut it. And whenever I counseled a lot, uh, there were individuals who had done some very, very, I'd have put them in an electric chair. <laughs> you know, I, I'd have tortured them. But, you know, they sat there and talked to me, and they were sorry they got caught. But they weren't sorry for what they had done. And I, I remember one individual in particular that I spoke to, and I've, I, may, I think I've said this before, but this was the only, the, the one individual that I got out of the chair and went over to and told him to get out of my office. <laughs> because he had, he had made me so frustrated with his indifference to his actions. And that he came there because if he came to Christian counseling, they wouldn't press charges. And he came there, and I can still remember him sitting there, and he had not one ounce of remorse for the sins that he had done for numerous years. And I told him to get out. Because there was no sorrow there. There was, and this wasn't just one meeting. This was a number of meetings in which we talked about, talked about, talked about it. And it was like, you just had to say to him, if you don't repent of what you've done, you know, basically saying, God's going to throw you out, and I'm telling you to leave my office because of what he had done. David here is in a situation in which he feels that, you know, he's king. He can do basically whatever he wants and get away with it. But whenever it comes to our relationship with God and who we are on the inside, and David talks about here in this psalm about wanting truth, truth on the inside. And David had lost that. He had lost that truth on the inside. And whenever he was confronted with losing this truth, he just, he just like collapses before God and he is repentant, a godly sorrow. My, you know, what have I done? How have I failed so drastically? And this is Psalm 51. And we're reading verses 1 through 15. And we're reading from the Message Bible. And I have some little excerpts here from the King James that kind of remind us of it. And this is David's repentance. In the King James, he says, Have mercy upon me, O God. In the message it says, Generous in love, God, give grace. Huge in mercy, wipe out my bad record. Scrub away my guilt. Soak out my sins in, in your laundry. I know how bad I've been. My sin's staring me down. In the King James it says, My sin is ever before me. It's like David is just, you know, he's just like, wow, he can't, you know, this is, this is so tragic in his life. You're the one I've violated, and you've seen it all, seen the full extent of my evil. In the King James, it says, Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. You have all the facts before you. Whatever you decide about me is fair. I've been out of step with you for a long time, in the wrong since before I was born. What you're after is truth from the inside out. Enter me then, 
Conceive a new, true life. Soak me in your laundry and I will become out clean. Scrub me and I'll have a snow-white life. Tune me in to foot-tapping songs. Set these once-broken bones to dancing. Don't look too closely for blemishes. Give me a clean bill of health. God, make a fresh start with me. Shape a Genesis week, the chaos of my life, from the chaos of my life. The King James says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Shape a Genesis week in me. Don't throw me out with the trash or fail to breathe holiness in me. Bring me back from gray exile. Put a fresh wind in my sail. King James says, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Give me a job teaching rebels your ways so the lost can find their way home. Commute my death sentence, God, my salvation, God, and I'll sing anthems to your life-giving ways. Unbutton my lips, dear God, and I'll, loose, I'll let loose with your praise. <laughs> Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. So this psalm then speaks of where we come from. This psalm is, 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 you know, some have said that this psalm is just basically a psalm of repentance and how people come to know God and they, they recognize their godly sorrow and repent of it and go on. But this is also a psalm that we need to read and read over again and recognize where we come from, where we were at in missing the mark, where we were out of step with God. And God has made in us a new nature. God has given us a new life. I have a new job. The new job is teaching rebels, <laughs> teaching rebels God's way, letting God speak through us and speak his word in our life. So this psalm is a psalm of repentance, a psalm written by David, a psalm written after he has gone into this affair and this horrendous crimes of sending his king, his uh, general to, to his death by going into battle and being the front man in to take over, the country, take over this city. So David then is out of step. He has overlooked one thing. His complacency has creeped into his life. And this complacency has given him a concept that everything is as it should be. And I'm pretty good where I'm at and everything is all right. You know, and it's a lot like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. In uh, Genesis, we did this in our Sunday school lesson, and I was, I, was, I was mentioning in Sunday school that when I wrote this sermon and wrote this, long before I had started to read the Sunday school lesson to study it, and the Sunday school lesson and this are very similar. So, and I even use some of the same scriptures that are in Sunday school for this today, so... You need, to list, you need to come to Sunday school. We had a great time talking about these things. So anyhow, Genesis, that was an advertisement, a little blip in there, there was a little advertisement, come to Sunday school? Okay, all right. Uh, we have coffee and donuts if you come at 9.30. So uh, <laughs> if you feed them, they will come. So uh, that's not in the Bible, okay? You know, that was a movie. Yeah. If you build it, they will come. It wasn't quite feed them, it was build them. See, that was the idea of what happens. <laughs> you know, it, it's funny how things get twisted. And that's what happened when Adam and Eve in the garden and with the word of God, things get twisted. They get out of focus. 
You know, um, the movie, whenever they build the, the stadium and stuff and, the, you know, build it, they will come. Well, we've, you know, if you feed them, they will come. You know, it's like, well, money is the root of all evil. No, the love of money is the root of all evil. Well, cleanliness is next to godliness. No. <laughs> you know, it's good to be clean, but that doesn't make you like God, okay? I'm sorry. You know, take a bath, yes. You know, that's a good thing. But it doesn't mean you're like God after you take a bath, all right? I'm sorry, it's just not in the Bible, you know? So anyhow, in Genesis chapter 2, God gave this commandment, and he gave it to Adam. This is one of the things we have to keep straight. When God gave the commandment not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he told Adam, Eve wasn't created yet. Ladies, you always want it off the hook? This is it, okay? All right? No, no one's off the hook. Anyhow, preacher said, I'm off the hook. I took a bath, I'm clean, and I'm off the hook. What else can there be, you know? Well, in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent, who was clever, more clever than all the wild animals God has made, he spoke to the woman, do I understand that God told you not to eat from any tree in the garden? The first misconception is God told Adam, don't eat of one tree, tree of knowledge of good and evil. Only thing he had to say, reason for this, Adam and Eve Adam was created to be caretaker of what God had created. He had one commandment, don't eat of the tree. The reason for that is God is the owner. Adam is the caretaker. Okay? We, when we give our life to Christ, God is the owner, we are the caretaker. We are the caretakers of our life, of our garden. And we are responsible before God. See, God wants to grow things in our garden, and we have the right to tell him, go grow someplace else. <laughs> or we have the right to say, God, you know, God has only given us two commandments in this garden that we live in. Love God, love your neighbors yourself. It's the only two commandments. Similar, we say Adam and Eve only had one. But anyhow, what does Satan do? He tempts Eve, by making her question. Well, did God told you you can't eat any tree in the garden. Eve says, oh no, not at all. We can eat from the trees in the garden. It's only the other tree in the middle of the garden that God said, don't eat from it and don't even touch it or you're going to die. Hello. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you, thought, you thought God was coming, huh? <laughs> That's it. She's laughing away back there, right on cue. I tell you, you got to bring kids to church. They know exactly when it's the right time to jump in. Yeah. Scared some of you right out of your wits. You thought God was coming, huh? So anyhow, Eve didn't get the commandment straight. Eve exaggerated the commandments. She said, oh, we're not allowed to touch it, or we're going to die. Do you know what? Eve hasn't a concept of what dying is. And God didn't say, don't touch it. He said, don't eat it. So what happens is we begin, and, and many people are like this. Well, I don't go to church because I don't understand this, I don't understand that. It generally, it's an exaggerated form of some 
obscure passage in the Bible that they, they haven't got a clue over, and you're going to try and explain it to them. And when you're done, it's like, I don't think I did that very well. <laughs> because, because we don't, the, the idea is we have to, the word speaks for itself. You know, we don't understand all things. You know, the, you know it's like uh, we're going to go out and have T-bone steak. And the devil comes up to you and says, you know what? Hath God said you can eat all steak? Well, that's right. We can eat the entire steak. Well, do you eat the bone? Well, no. Well, then that's a sin. Hello. When you eat T-bone steak, how many eat the bone? You eat the meat and leave the bone, right? You give the bone to the dog? Something like that? In our understanding of the Scripture... There are some things that we don't understand, but there are some things that we do understand. But, you know, with the passing of time and the maturing, you begin to understand other things you kind of have to put aside. Just like telling your child, don't go play in the street. What do they do? I didn't get hit by a car. They're standing on the sidewalk. They're standing on the curb. I didn't get hit by a car. Standing off on the curb, on the, on the street. I didn't get hit by a car. <laughs> well, with age, and when they have kids, what are they going to say? Don't stand on the street! <laughs> because it took a while for them to get the concept that you can, you're going to get hurt out there on the street. So understand, there are some things that we don't understand, but take the truth that we do understand and know that truth. Well, Eve here is playing into the hands of, uh, of, of Satan because Satan is playing the game here. And woman says, you know, Satan says, you can't eat any trees. And she says, not at all. We can eat from the trees in the garden. It's only this one we're not allowed to touch. So the serpent told the woman, you won't die. God knows that the moment you eat of the, the tree that you'll see what's really going on. You're going to be just like God. You're going to know everything, ranging from all the way from good to evil. First of all, Eve hasn't got a concept of what death is. She hasn't even got a concept of what evil is. And so when Satan says you're not going to die, he's telling her a half-truth. Because she is going to live forever, but he's planning on her spending an eternity with him. Evil's decision and motive is to destroy God's creation, to destroy God's image in us. Evil wants to take away the image of God in your life. The image of God is the moral fiber of who we are as a person. It is the fiber that God created in us and breathed into us at the very beginning. So he, God wants us to know the word and to know what the word says and, and to take it in its context and in, within the context of the whole book. It takes the scripture to interpret the scripture. You know, you can, people will take obscure passages and, and isolate them and say, see what this means. And it's like, well, in taking it out of context and reading it, and sure, it doesn't make sense. 
But when you put it within the framework of what is said, what has been said, what is said throughout the scripture, we've got 1,600 years of, of the Bible being written by multiple authors. And there is one person who inspires it, and that's God. And that's why there is a contextual string. There is a contextual flow from the whole way from the beginning to the end about reconciliation and redemption and forgiveness that even appears here at the very beginning in the garden. So we know the word. Take the word and understand the word and allow the scripture to tell us and talk to us about the character of God. Adam and Eve, they broke God's commandment and it seemed like they became complacent in this place of relationship with God. Hmm. Well, temptations come to everyone. And temptations come to us. You know, in, in this context of Adam and Eve, there are three temptations, three categories where temptation always fall into. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. It looks good. It feels good. It's going to make me more than what I am. Okay? Now, if you look at the advertising that goes on in our, in our society, it makes you look good, it'll make you feel good, and it's going to make you better than what you are. Show me one advertisement that doesn't talk about those three things. Those are the three categories that Eve was tempted with in the garden. They're still the same three categories that tempt us. And we are tempted by those little areas of our life that we kind of have hidden in remote areas. Well, see, when God creates a clean heart, renews a right spirit in us, he, he's walking with us, and David, you know, you've got a weakness here, and you don't pay attention to this. There's somebody going to come along and present something to you that's going to tempt you to go in the wrong direction. So... David walked into this sin, this, this trap, knowing completely what he was doing. I'm king. I can do whatever I please. But the outcome was something that he had never imagined. The outcome was something he couldn't believe would happen. You see, God had brought David from being a shepherd boy, watching sheep, to king of Israel. His writings and his songs and his leadership would be examples that, that all generations would follow in Judaism. And even for us, we study it and look at it. And even the promise that his descendants would sit upon the throne of Israel forever. The Messiah. And David risked it all for this affair with Bathsheba. Satan, and, and this was a quote from the Sunday School lesson this morning. It says, Satan give Satan gave Adam an apple and took away paradise. <laughs> Satan gave Adam an apple. And he really, we don't know what kind of fruit it was. But he gave Adam, Adam an apple and he took away paradise. There are temptations that come to us and we need to consider what we're going to lose, not what we're going to gain. And always temptation, look good, feel good, make me more than what I am. David thought that his 
he was untouchable as king, and who's going to do something against me? And surely I have all of my wives and concubines, what's one more? And he thought he could get away with it. Well, God isn't slack in his promises, meaning that if God were a vengeful God, he would have killed Adam and Eve, started over again. And if he were that kind of a God, when, when David sinned, kill him, let's get another guy in here. But God doesn't work that way. The promise of God is that Peter talks about it the, and says, God isn't late with his promises as some measure lateness. He is restraining himself on account of you. You see, God, you know, if there is a God in heaven, let him strike me dead. You know, in the next 30 seconds. Okay, so here you are. You think you can exhaust the grace of God in 30 seconds? When the entire humanity and all of the sins and failures of humanity have, has not exhausted the grace of God, you're going to stand there and somehow be belligerent enough to say, if there's a God in heaven, let him strike me dead. <laughs> Didn't happen. This cue for the kids to cry. <laughs> but, you know, people will say these things. And, well, you see, there is no God, and, you know, this is hell, and this is that, and I'm going to get an asbestos suit when I go to hell so I don't get burned. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> okay, buddy. All right. But you see, God isn't slack. He isn't lax in his promises. He is restraining himself because he loves you more than you understand. He has more grace for your life and the lives of the people that aren't here, lives of people who won't go to church, the lives of people who won't darken the door of any type of a religion because they just don't believe. They've seen too many phones. They've seen too many this. They've seen this. You know what? The world is full of hypocrites. I, you know, I've never been to a bar. I mean, I really, I, one time I was at a bar, and I went in there to, to talk to someone about crud. Imagine that. I was walking down the street in Rhode Island, and, uh, you know, like I told you about, the, we went into that palm reader's place, because we felt God wanted us to go in there. So we laid a Bible in her hand, and she screamed. I walked into this bar, and I was praying none of the people from the school saw me because I'd get kicked out. <laughs> so I walked into this bar, and I'm standing there, and I'm like, terrified there's all these people and smoke and it's dark and it's whatever and I, and I just turned around and I looked at this person and I said God has me here for you <laughs> and I started talking to him and he says I can't believe you came in here to tell me that I can't because I used to go to church but I've been running away from God and I said God brought me here to tell you that he loves you and he wants you back. The message that God has, that's the same message Samuel gave to David. And it's the same message that God gives to each of us. All the time, and he always wants to bring us closer to him. He's not going to drive us, he's going to lead us. He's going to bring his message. And his giving, he's giving everyone space and time to change. You want to know why God doesn't just 
stop, you know, the second coming of Christ, the trumpet of God shall sound, the dead in Christ shall rise, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet him in the air. You want to know why God isn't coming back? Because he's giving everyone space and time to change. He is a gracious and loving and kind God who wants to give every living person a chance at heaven. And he is, he is waiting, wanting people running home. Come on home, running. He's giving every living being, every person a chance. And there is a day and there will come a day in which it will be over. But right now, he gives everyone space and time to change. This psalm is David's plea for mercy and God's grace. When David states in verse 4 that he has sinned against God, he says, you, and this is, the one, of those, this is one of those psalms, he says, and this is one of those verses, it's like, how can this be? This doesn't make sense. He says, against God, you are the one. I violated. That's the Message Bible. King James says, Against you and you only I have sinned and done evil in your sight. David has sinned with Bathsheba, been complacent in his leadership as king, sends one of his leaders of his army to his death, and he says, God, you're the only one that I've affected in this. Well, Every day on the news, we have people who are victims. We have people who have been hurt, robbed, killed, families who have been, had loved ones taken from them, assaulted. These are victims. But ultimately, ultimately, every offense is against God. Every offense where people rebel against the character, the moral character that is inside of them that was created by God. There are some people who live with a seared conscience. A seared conscience is they have no feeling anymore for good. They have no feeling anymore for remorse. They have no feeling because they have done it so long and so often they don't feel it anymore. But they are still going to be accountable for it. There is a judgment day. God is waiting with his grace to forgive. But the accounting is still there. Bible says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. That is why God wants us to focus on forgiving. That is why God wants us to let go of the pain and let go of it until the pain is gone. We keep forgiving until our pain is gone and our life is healed and we're going on with life because every person that has created these pains is still going to be accountable to God. And I can't be their judge. Their actions will be their judges before God. That's why I forgive. Because I have to. I can't live with all that pain. I can't live with all those, those hurts and those things that have been done. I can't live with them. That's why I have to forgive them and let them all put them in God's hands. And they didn't get away with it. God holds us accountable unless, just like us, in this moment of time, like David, 
we confess and we ask God for forgiveness. David repents. He has a godly sorrow. He is full of remorse and repentance. Places himself in a, in a position where he cries out to God and asks for forgiveness. And the grace that forgives and restores is a costly grace. You see, Samuel didn't come in to David and say, you know what, you've sinned, but you're forgiven. <laughs> it's not that. The grace that we have is like, sometimes we bestow grace is saying, you know what, God has grace for all of us. Okay, you've all got it, go home. <laughs> That's kind of like a, an insignificant grace. A costly grace is, I recognize I have sinned, but God has paid the price for me to be forgiven. God has paid the price. And that price was his death on the cross and his, his blood being shed. And I recognize that I am cleansed by this grace and this mercy. I am not worthy of it, but God has given it to me. And so as I repent, I am looking for truth to be inside of me. Truth to be inside of me. The truth of God's love and the truth of God's forgiveness. The truth that I have failed, but the truth that I can become. The truth that I will be what God created me to be. I have a hope and I have a, a purpose and I have a goal and I have a new life. I have heaven. I have eternity. I have the power of God and the presence. These are truths that I allow God to speak into my heart. That I allow God to, to come into my life and restore me as if I had never sinned as if things had never gone wrong in my life because God looks beyond my faults. He sees my need. God, help me to look beyond the faults of others and see where I'm going, not allowing them to determine where I am going, not allowing my past to influence my present, to recognize that eternity is where I'm going and God is leading me there. <laughs> this grace is an action of God towards us. It's an action of God. He's saying, I'm here, I've given it to you. And my godly sorrow says, I have transgressed and I have sinned and God has forgiven me. <laughs> David declares in verse 6, Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost places. Cleanse me, wash me, and I will be whiter than the snow. It isn't like David is saying, well, you know, God, I really didn't do that. <laughs> That's Adam and Eve. What'd you do? Oh, Adam says, God, well, it's not my fault. It's hers, you know? It's not my fault. It's the woman you gave me. So ultimately, God, it's your fault. <laughs> you imagine, imagine Adam telling God, excuse me, God, it's not my fault. It's yours. If you hadn't made this woman the way she is, you know, you did it. And then Eve, of course, says, it's not my fault. God, it's that serpent you made. <laughs> it's your fault again, because if you hadn't made him, I wouldn't have been listening. And the serpent says, sorry, it's not my fault. It's that devil that got inside of me and called me to talk to her this way. <laughs> Hello. 
Whose fault is it? God's. <laughs> see, if we didn't have free will, yeah, see what I mean? And blame game goes a long way. Um, did you ever ask your kids who did it? <laughs> okay, who started it? They did. <laughs> who created the problem? Wasn't me. Verse 10. What does David say? Created me a pure heart, clean heart, oh God, and renew a, stred, a steadfast or a right spirit within me. God, renew me. Renew me. Create, create, create. A Genesis moment. What did God do at the beginning? He formed the dust of the earth and he breathed into their mouth the breath of life and they became a living soul. When God forgives us, it is create in me. Create. create. Everybody say create. Again, create. Create in me. It means that God is still creating. And what is he creating? He's creating in you and me a new heart, a right spirit. He's creating in me a new life. Come home running, <laughs> just as you are. Come home running. His arms are open wide. Come home running. Why? Because I am repentant and I am sorry for my sins and my failures and God create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me because I've got an eternity to live with you and I want to live with you forever. God wants us to close, he wants us to be close to him. God wants us to be close to him. The Bible says, don't, you know, he wants us to enter into his yoke with him. Hey, let's make a team of this, Jesus says. Let's make a team of this, you and I. How about it? You and I together, we're going to be a team in this. We're going to yoke up. <laughs> we're going to be a yoke together. And we are going, and Jesus says, enter into my yoke with me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Create a new spirit within me. Create a clean heart in me. Renew a right spirit. And God and I together are going to take this on. Because i got a plan for you. I've got a purpose for you. I've got hope for you. I've got a tomorrow for you. I've got, I've got adventures for you. And no matter what happens in your life, the two of us are going to make it. That's a good time to say amen. <laughs> the two of us are going to make it. <laughs> okay, the two of us. <laughs> the two of us are going to make it. God and I together. Amen. amen. You know, and if we have that conflict going on, God, forgive me. That's where it starts. And how many times a day do we have to say that? Well, oh, if you knew, if you worked with the people I worked with, you'd have to say it every day. <laughs> you know what? You may have to. Until we get the strength, until we get the strength, until that new spirit and that and that power of God is alive within us. God is at work. Amen? Shall we stand? Father, forgive us. <laughs> How about that one? Jesus, forgive me. Let's say that. Jesus, forgive me. I come with godly sorrow. Jesus, forgive me.
Yes, it was, it was Eve. Yes, it was the serpent. Yes, it was Satan. But Adam is responsible for his decision. Eve is responsible for her decision. God, I am responsible for my decisions. Forgive me. Godly sorrow. Put truth in my heart. I don't have to blame someone else. I don't have to blame circumstances. I don't have to blame. God, this is where I am. I need your forgiveness because I want the clean heart. I want a right spirit. I want, I, want to, I want to go on with you, Lord, because that's what you want with me. You want, Lord, to make me clean and new again. You want me to be your child. You want me to enter into that yoke with you. You want to be a team with me. You want to team up with me, Lord. Thank you. I come home running, Lord, just as I am, and I enter into that yoke with you, and I am forever changed, headed to home, which is an eternity with you. Thank you, Jesus, for forgiving me. Thank you for the truth of your word that sets me free. Thank you for the power of your spirit that gives me strength each day. Thank you, Jesus. Come home running just as you are. Amen? Amen. Amen. God bless you. I was going to say, last week we had some testimony from... Oh.